As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I keep getting phone calls about, well, are you going to pay this? Are you going to pay that? Well, I'm kind of waiting for unemployment to let me know. I filed that at the end of March, and it's been in review for the last six weeks. I've literally been calling every day. This morning I called 782 times in a three-hour period. I am still pending. I haven't received any benefits. I haven't received any money whatsoever. Nothing, zero. There's no income in our house at all. We're down to our last couple dollars here, trying to feed out a seven-year-old. For thousands of people in the Badger State, trying to get unemployment benefits has become a full-time job. Like everywhere else, Wisconsin's dealing with an unprecedented spike in claims due to the pandemic. But the system was hurting long before anyone had ever heard of COVID-19. And this week's state Supreme Court decision is adding another wrinkle. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Friday, May 15th, 2020. And today we're talking about the issue that brings the most phone calls and emails into our newsroom, unemployment. It's no secret that thousands of people have been waiting weeks for their payments. The state has been talking about hiring more people to handle claims since March. So why is there still a backlog? To understand all this. We need to go back to the early 1900s, when Wisconsin essentially invented unemployment compensation. Really? So how did that happen? It actually started with a love story in 1923 at the University of Wisconsin. That's where Paul Rauschenbusch met Elizabeth Brandeis. If her last name sounds familiar, it's because she's the daughter of progressive U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. Elizabeth and Paul eventually get married and become economics professors at UW. They also become friends with a guy named Philip LaFollette, the local district attorney. One night, he invites a couple over to his house along with another economist named Harold Groves and says he wants to run for governor. And if he wins, he wants legislation that starts unemployment compensation in Wisconsin. So the group starts working on a plan. And I guess we can figure out where this goes next. That's right. That plan becomes law in 1932. Four years later, Wisconsin starts making unemployment compensation payments. And that made Wisconsin the first state to give unemployed workers compensation with the rate of benefits based on their previous salary. A few years later, this social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens 
who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act of 1935, which has unemployment insurance provisions largely based on the work of those Wisconsin economists. Over the next several years, our unemployment system evolves into what you see today. So I didn't know we were going to get this great history lesson on open record today, but now we're back into the present. How does that system actually work? So Wisconsin's unemployment insurance program gets money through employers. They pay federal and state unemployment taxes. The federal taxes are used for more administrative expenses, and the state taxes go to the unemployment benefits for workers. So the idea is you file a claim, and if you're eligible, you get the money. At least that's how it's supposed to work. And the reason we went through all that history at the beginning is because labor attorneys tell us the way the system works today is not how its founders envisioned it. The unemployment system was the system designed to be able to handle a massive amount of claims and to get dollars out quickly. So the fact that Wisconsin, which invented unemployment, now seems to be unable to kind of just figure out its left foot from its right foot And to move forward is kind of a phenomenal problem that deserves a little bit more analysis. That's Victor Forberger. He's a labor and employment attorney. He says a slew of changes to the system over the last 10 years have made getting unemployment in Wisconsin so difficult that it created a perfect storm for chaos when COVID-19 hit. So what kind of changes is he talking about in recent years that made this so difficult? Well, if you ask Victor, it all comes down to Scott Walker. The difference between Wisconsin and Washington is we actually get things done. In the Walker era, there were several changes to the unemployment compensation system. Remember, this was right after the Great Recession. And during that time, Wisconsin had to borrow money from the federal government in order to keep paying unemployment benefits. So Scott Walker's rationale when he's talking about these changes he wants to the public is we need to protect our unemployment insurance trust fund. We need to make sure we have money there. So over the next several years, we start to see these changes, and there's a slew of them. We see the addition of a one-week waiting period before you can start collecting your benefits. So that first week you're unemployed, you're not going to get your unemployment check. We see the addition of categories that allow people to get fired and not be able to collect unemployment benefits. We see the elimination of several exceptions that allowed employees who quit to be able to collect benefits. We see the requirements for job searches double. It used to be that you needed to show proof that you did two work searches a week. That goes up to four and in some cases five. In some cases, if someone has more than one job and quits one of them, they're now ineligible to collect unemployment for the next year if they're laid off from a different job. So we see these changes come down the pike. We see additional requirements for uh, job search activities that people need to do. And again, if you talk to supporters of these changes, if you talk to anyone in the Walker administration, They're going to tell you this was to protect the unemployment trust fund. And right now, the balance stands at $1.8 billion. You're going to have a lot of people saying this worked. This protected the fund. 
Well, and, and prior to an emergency situation like this or a crisis like this, uh, you know, I've been here for a long time at, at Fox 6 News, and we've done a number of stories over the years where there were real problems with the uninsurance fund being exploited through fraud. And, and uh, the Department of Workforce Development faced a substantial amount of criticism for not doing enough to vet claims and to check out. For instance, we were finding people who were in prison or people who were currently incarcerated in the local jail were easily able to defeat the system and claim that they were out looking for work and get payments. And it wasn't always easy for the state to catch that. So there certainly was support for buttoning things up and making it more difficult or at least making people jump through more hoops to confirm that the claims they were making were legitimate. Right. So the idea is if you make the system too easy to use, it's too simple for people to exploit the system, which makes it harder for people who need these benefits and deserve these benefits to get them. So that was certainly an argument there. If you talk to people like Victor Forberger, who represents people who are trying to get their unemployment benefits, he thinks we went too far in that direction, making it tougher for the everyday person to use the system, thus creating the situation we have now. So for example, uh, in Wisconsin, the work search requirement that existed before, that's been waived by the governor. However, you still need to register for job services. You need to upload a resume. You need to do all these things, even though you're not actually looking for a job, those requirements that are go toward the underlying principle of looking for a job still exist. For a long time, for several weeks, that one-week waiting period was still in effect. So people are trying to get their money quickly. They're still having to wait a week to get their benefits. It wasn't until several weeks in that the legislature waived that statutory requirement. And by the time they did, Wisconsin had missed out on $25 million in federal aid because of that, because that aid was promised for states that waived the one-week waiting period. So what I'm finding as I'm talking to all these people who have been struggling to get unemployment, a lot of them were actually in favor of those Walker provisions as they were coming down. They had never had to use the system before. And then when they started having to use the system, it was already difficult to use. You add to that this incredible spike and people trying to get their benefits, and it all comes together in a way uh, where people are extremely frustrated and they're waiting weeks for benefits. Well, I think it's it's easy to see how in normal times with normal demand on the system, how a lot of these protections make sense in terms of ensuring that employers, for instance, aren't being exploited. If you run a small business, you pay into that system. And when there's a claim against you, it comes out of your balance and, and ultimately can adjust the amount of unemployment taxes you have to pay. So it makes sense in normal times. But clearly, we are not in normal times and the demands have not just spiked by a percentage they've ex they've spiked by by orders of of uh magnitude that are you know we've never seen before well and even in normal times brian i i came across a really interesting piece uh from joe tar uh in isthmus in 2017 and he's going through talking to people who because of this crackdown in unemployment fraud which i think a lot of people at the time agreed was something that needed to happen, the way it was implemented, people who were making 
mistakes on their unemployment form, which the questions can be very confusing if you've never done it before. People who are making mistakes or even mistakes made by state employees, they were getting hit with these penalties and they were getting caught up in these huge battles. So I think for a lot of people, the idea of some of these reforms made sense, but in the implementation, you start to see some things where people now who need these benefits are having trouble accessing it. Is that just a natural piece of collateral damage? I don't know. But in 2017, we were hearing about issues popping up with the complications of the system as well. What seems to me to really stand out right now, though, is that you have uh, we're in a crisis situation where uh, obviously, there have been extraordinary efforts at the federal level to uh, increase the amount of unemployment aid that is going out, including the extra $600 a week. There's a recognition that this is a time when so many people have lost their jobs. We're seeing historic levels of unemployment, that there are people who have a crisis need to have that money right now to feed their families, to clothe their families. But because of the rules and regulations and maybe just because of the excessive demand, we're hearing so many stories of people who are still waiting on their benefits. And often it's because of investigations that have to be done to ensure people are eligible. Is that really where the hang up is, is these determinations of eligibility? That's certainly one of the roadblocks. So it was interesting. I, I was going through some legislative audits. And I found one from 2014 describing problems with the Department of Workforce Development's claims intake system. So for two months, that system blocked more than 80 percent of incoming calls. Now, by the time the audit was published, the Department of Workforce Development had already significantly upgraded its system to move the claims process online. But what happened was the 50-year-old software that pays out the claims was never upgraded. So that system is called COBOL, which stands for Common Business Oriented Language. So as DWD tries to hire more employees, they're not just looking for adjudicators, the people who handle these investigations when something is flagged on a claim. They're also looking for people who are familiar with this 50-year-old software and people who can do this older language, this coding language. So we're in a situation now where they had actually tried to upgrade it obviously not knowing COVID-19 was going to hit at the beginning of this year. That didn't happen. And then this hits. So we have a lot of different things at play, but certainly the investigations is part of it. And again, you're dealing with a lot of people who have never filed for unemployment before. So the process can be very confusing. If you trip up on a question and you now have to have your claim investigated, that's going to take a long time. We're hearing from a lot of people who, in part because of these reforms that happened in the last 10 years, are getting denied claims because of a couple hours of freelance work that they did in February, or their claim is caught up in adjudication because they were a student, they were taking one night class, and now their entire claim needs to be investigated. So it's a combination of the investigations, these reforms, this old coding language and the software that we have that never got updated and then just people having trouble navigating the system. Well, and and as we've talked before about other things, for instance, the stimulus, one of the most frustrating things for people waiting to find out what was going to happen with their stimulus check has been the inability to talk to anyone at the IRS and get 
clear answers for people filing for unemployment or people who are waiting on these adjudications, these these decisions on eligibility. We hear over and over again that they followed every step. They didn't make mistakes so far as they know. They've done everything they were asked to do. And then they're just sort of in the dark. Is that a big part of the frustration here? Not only having to wait, but waiting in the dark, wondering when is this going to be resolved and will it be resolved correctly? Yeah, you see your claim is pending. You don't know why. Uh, You try to call and you can't get through. Uh, You're being told to do everything online. You did everything online and then you're told that someone's going to call you to talk about something. No one calls or they call you and they tell you you didn't send in paperwork that you know you did. I've talked to a lot of people who have had trouble because they've had to fax documents in and they have and then they're told, you know, weeks later, oh, we never got that. Um, I spoke with one woman who Her claim has been pending for almost eight weeks now, and she reached out to her employer, and the state still hasn't reached out to her employer, which is part of the process when you have a pending claim, and it's been eight weeks. So you have a lot of different things going on. Now, for weeks now, the state has been saying we're hiring more people to handle this. They just signed a contract with an outside call center. The issue is it the hiring process takes a while. Because you're hiring people who are handling very sensitive, personally identifying information. So you need to vet these people. You need to make sure you've done the appropriate background check. And then once you've vetted and you feel like you've hired the right people, you found people who know this old software that the system that pays out the claims is running on, then you need to train them. And that can take anywhere from two to three weeks. So this is something... Uh, that isn't just a snap your fingers and hire more people. What I've tried to dig into in my reporting is a lot of the underlying issues. It's not just about not having enough people. The process itself is something that's tripping up a lot of people. And now with the latest Supreme Court ruling, the state Supreme Court ruling that strikes down Safer at Home, we've added an entirely new wrinkle to the system that is going to cause more delays and more denials of claims. So about the Supreme Court ruling, you say that adds a whole new wrinkle to this. How does that impact these unemployment claims? So if your business was shut down and you couldn't work because of that. You know, you're filing for unemployment. And even if you haven't gotten the check, you you know you're eligible to receive those benefits. What happens now that the Safer at Home order is struck down is businesses are going to start calling employees back to work. The issue is schools are still closed. So you have some people who still need to stay home because they're the primary provider of child care. You have some people who are immunocompromised or have children who are immunocompromised and they're saying wait a minute do I have to go back here what's going on what are my rights and what are my responsibilities and then you have all these people who have filed claims from previous weeks and they're saying are we still going to get paid so I talked to the Department of Workforce Development they say claims owed from previous weeks will still get paid You're still exempt from work search requirements through September 2020. And that one week waiting period we talked about is still waived through February 2021. The federal expansions like that additional $600 per week, the 13 additional weeks of potential payments, those remain intact as long as you remain eligible. But that's the key thing. Who is still going to remain eligible? 
a lot of it is a case-by-case basis. So if you are immunocompromised and you have the correct medical documentation, there's a good chance that you can refuse work in that case and still get unemployment benefits, but that's going to be a whole process because it needs to be investigated. If you need to provide child care and you can't go back to work because of that, you typically would not qualify for traditional benefits, but you may still qualify for some of these federal additions uh, that were tacked on because of the pandemic. You still need to go through the investigation process. So people who are already frustrated about claims taking a long time, we have entirely new categories of claims now that need to be investigated, that need to go through adjudication, that you need to provide documentation for. And that's why we're talking about more claims being denied. And it's why we're talking about more claims being delayed. Now, if you're in a situation where maybe you're not immunocompromised, but you feel uncomfortable going back to work, typically feeling uncomfortable, that's you're going to be denied your unemployment claim. That's typically not something that you would be able to collect unemployment for because the whole idea is, is work available to you? And if you are able to work and you're refusing work, then that's going to disqualify you. However, if there are very specific safety concerns that you have, you know, for example, I have 100% the ability to work from home and my employer is making it a policy that we all have to come in and sit shoulder to shoulder with no masks and no hand sanitizers, then that is a specific thing that could qualify you. Again, you need to go through the process. It needs to be investigated and you need to be prepared for the result being, no, you don't get these benefits. So that's why there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And that's why we have this big wrinkle with the state Supreme Court ruling. Well, a lot more to be uh, discussed on this as time goes on. I know you've been right on top of it. And we appreciate all you're doing to keep people informed. This is an issue that's not going to go away soon. And of course, we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic. If there's a topic you want us to discuss and an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That is T-H-E investigators at fox6now.com. Thank you to the people who made this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we'll be back on Monday. Monday.